All right. Are we rolling? We have been. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) He's got everything. Um, All right. I guess we can just go. So welcome to the first of what we hope to be many, many podcasts of Light Beer, Dark Money. My name is Sean Noble. Across the table from me is Chris Clements. Good day, Sean. Good day. (laughs) It is a good day. It's a beautiful day. So, um, Chris, why don't you kick it off with how did, why are we sitting here? Like, yeah. how did this come together? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting cause you and I have known each other now for gosh, 20 years. Um, and we met back in the nineties during the Republican takeover of, of Congress and your former boss and, and my friend John Shattuck, you worked for him, and that's how we got to know each other. But then we knew a lot of peripheral folks, I think, on the Hill and knew a lot of folks involved in the conservative movement in different stages back then. And and um, what was interesting about that time for me was that my father just passed away in 1995. And I instantly was thrown into this world of beer distribution and a family business called Golden Eagle Distributors. And and we would go to Washington, D.C. as on, on behalf of the National Beer Wholesalers Association and lobby members of Congress for whatever was on the docket for that year. And typically it'd be something having to do with tax reform or something with alcohol regulation or um, advertising restrictions or things of that nature. And I can remember... Um, sitting down with John Shattuck and him just taking an inordinate of extra time with me and us having these amazing conversations about stuff and about whatever I wanted to talk about after the meeting that, that would happen with the other wholesalers. And I never understood why he would take that time other than the fact he told me later he just enjoyed the conversation and wanted to keep it going. And so I think that's kind of what is has initiated this podcast, which is you and I get together from time to time and we talk political shop and we enjoy conversation and we sort of look at the political world as kind of laughable because I think you and I both treat people as people, right. not as political animals. And whether they're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, we have our principles, we have the things that we believe in dearly but I don't evaluate other people as friends or uh, people I'd like to work with based upon that. Right. And that was something that was in fully ingrained in me at a young age by my own dad in the business. And I can remember when it was ingrained in me, actually. And it's kind of a funny story, but, but not really. <laughs> if you remember the 1984 congressional elections... 1984, uh, Ronald Reagan won in a landslide. Walter Mondale won one state, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And a gentleman by the name of Jim Colby was running against a gentleman by the name of Jim McNulty down in Tucson. And I can remember um, it being a very big race because people really liked Jim McNulty, and but people really loved Ronald Reagan. And there was this idea that Ronald Reagan needed more Republicans in the House. And a group of 
very powerful businessmen at that time in Tucson, um, got together a, a, a pretty good coalition and got Jim Colby elected. And I remember going out on election eve with my dad, Bill Clements, and going to two parties that night, one being Jim Colby's victory party. But then we also went to Jim McNulty's party. Hmm. And I remember distinctly being in the car asking my father, why are we going to the Democrats' party? Aren't we Republicans? And at that time, I was a subscriber to National Review and reading Right Reason by Bill Buckley and completely, totally into learning more about conservative philosophy specifically and why I believe the things I believed in because I didn't understand why I believed those mm -hmm. things. And I remember distinctly my father saying to me, because Jim McNulty is a good man. And I get chills even thinking about what he, how he said that. He said, Jim McNulty is a good man and we don't evaluate people by their politics. We evaluate people by their hearts, which was a very Jesus thing to say at that time, very Christian thing. My father was the best of that. And I, I didn't understand what he meant until much later. Um, and I decided to pursue what he said because my first really foray into politics after that was an internship with Democratic Senator Dennis DeConcini. Right. And it was all in that spirit of Dennis DeConcini is a really nice man. He's got a great heart. He's moderate. My dad was like, I think you can work with him and learn a, a tremendous amount about why you believe the way you believe and why they believe why they believe. And it's okay. I have no idea why Senator DeConcini brought me on his intern staff that year because I was surrounded by a lot of folks who I generally liked. But politically, we could, I mean, it was just different. Right. And I'm sure you've, you've encountered the same thing oh, in, in your life story. Well, and I, th I think I, I, I think one of the things that that strikes me from your story one is the great example that your dad was and seeing people for who they are, not you know what party they're a part of. And um, boy, if there's if we need if the if we've ever needed that, now is the time, I, right? I, 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 I couldn't mean, agree just, with you more. It's just so crazy how divided things are, and you know, we were we're about the same age. Um, I was also in 84, a subscriber to National Review. It's just crazy to think that you and I were... My parents thought I was crazy. Yeah. Well, my my mom was kind of crazy. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Um, she'll be listening. But because uh, there were two magazines that I recall... Well, three, Sports Illustrated. But the two you know, magazines that came to our house were National Review and The New American, mm. the John Birch Society magazine right because yeah, my that mom did was not make it to our house <laughs> so thankfully national review came every other week and the new american was once a month so i had more national review influence than i did john birch society <laughs> so i had more william f buckley and less robert welch um so uh my dad was very much a buckley conservative my mom was a bircher um mm. but i i followed in my dad's footsteps in that regard um I just revered uh, Buckley, could, you know, devoured as much as I could reading it. As I said to people, I 
Um, I read National Review. You know, you talk about. Uh, I, I got National Review for the pictures, right? Because <laughs> people talk about getting Playboy for the mag- for their articles. That's you know, inside joke, but. Um, well, because I had a whole center back then of cartoons and political yeah. cartoons. That was yeah. sort of like which was that was that was sort of the centerfold, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but I grew up in a very similar way in the sense of, um, you know, I grew up in Sholo, Arizona, which uh, at the time was a Democrat stronghold. Um, you know, my my parents were one of a very few Republicans. Uh, I mean, they were conservative Democrats. I, you know, my first foray in politics was in 1980. My mom sat me down and said, call these people, tell them to vote for Ronald Reagan. And it was all the Republicans in Cholo. And it took me about 10 minutes. <laughs> all 20 uh, of them. Back yeah. Then. And so then she said, call these people. And it was all the Democrats. And so for, I called for a couple of weeks as a 10 year old kid, you know, I guess I wanted to people unlikely to hang up on a 10 year old kid, but I got to, to experience firsthand the, the, becomings of the Reagan Democrats, because there were a lot of people that were like, yeah, I'm going to support Reagan. Um, and so, uh, fast forward to 1994 and I am working for John Shattuck. He's running for Congress for the first time. And he, we're running the campaign from the mother-in-law unit house that's behind the Shattuck homestead, which is where they ran Barry Goldwater's first campaign. In 1952, his dad was Goldwater's manager. And there was so much history there. And the garage was full of memorabilia and memos and all kinds of stuff from all over the, you know, through all the years of his dad's political involvement. And, you know, Stephen Shattuck was an icon when it came to campaign management. I mean, people forget when Goldwater won in 1952, he beat the, the Senate president. Ernest McFarland, and uh, in the the U.S. Senate, and Arizona at that time was five to one Democrat to Republican registration advantage. Mm -hmm. I mean, Republicans were Republicans didn't become the majority in Arizona until 1986, which I think a lot of people. I mean, that means Reagan won both times in Arizona with Democrat majority in Arizona. Um, But so. You know, I'm a Buckley, Goldwater, and then Shattuck, conservative. <laughs> so, and then, you know, how this comes together, light beer, dark money. Well, you have the beer background. And my background in the last number of years has been in outside independent expenditure spending and politics, uh, euphemistically known as dark money because it's anonymous. And for a long time, I really, I really chafed at the term dark money, because it sounds sinister, right? But it's, it, it is what it is. I mean, they're going to call it dark money. People are going to, you know, complain about it. Um, but I'm a f- strong proponent of the First Amendment and what enables us to express ourselves. Um, as I tell people, they say, well, you know, you, you, should, you should disclose who's paying for these ads or, you know, because that's, People needed transparency, that kind of thing. I said, well, it's really about the message. It's not about who is necessarily paying for the message. An example I use is the Federalist Papers. They were published anonymously. And it was because I think Hamilton had it right. He knew that 
if he's publishing these in New York, trying to influence people about the importance of the Constitution and to get it ratified, they aren't going to listen to some Virginian in Madison. So that's why they had a, you know, he had a, you know, a pen name. So I think that, um, you know, we can debate all kinds of stuff over the First Amendment, but I believe the First Amendment has been under assault um, for years, more so now than ever. And so we'll talk about dark money, we'll talk about light beer, and we'll talk about everything in between on this podcast. Well, well, yeah, the whole idea of the of the title of the podcast is is both an is a little bit of a, an ode to our past, right? But also that we're not bound by those pasts. And, and we've had transformative events that have happened, and we'll probably touch on those within within the context of the podcast and, and, and our, our personal histories. But, you know, people have definite opinions about each of those things. Yes, Light they beer. do. <laughs> and, and, and dark, dark money. money. <laughs> um, uh, a, a mentor, what about dark beer and light money? Uh, dark beer and light money. <laughs> well, see, uh, yeah, dark dark beer is actually a good thing. <laughs> you know, light money might might not be. I'm not quite sure. Not sure. Um, but yeah, I. You know, we 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 had a, a family business and we ran it successfully for over 20 years after my father passed away, and I sold a lot of light beer, um, introduced Michelob Ultra into the state of Arizona, number one test market, all these great things. Sold a lot of light beer, <laughs> which I could never understand why people would drink light beer, and I drank light beer probably as a youth. You know, you know, in my early twenties, and uh, became a, a great fan, though, of clean, classic American age Budweiser. <laughs> and to this day, I'm, I'm, I, I, um, I don't, I don't drink anymore. And and um, and light beer, just I, if I did, I, I, I couldn't even. You know, that wouldn't, if you it. if you were drinking, it wouldn't be light beer. It would not be light beer. Yeah. And um, but people have different opinions about everything these days, and, and certainly opinions about those things. But um, but the discourse that we've entered into um, is is a sad state of our of our body politic. I mean, people cannot be respectful, be honorable be um, charitable about others and what views views they may have and I and um, I, I I'm very passionate about what I believe but I really enjoy hearing what other people think as well and I enjoy people and well, that, that and is that, such a and, great point and I I have um, two of my best friends are 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 politically opposite of me. And there are things we'll, we'll discuss, but there are things that and we'll agree upon, there are things we don't agree upon. And what I have found also, is I've been able, even in my old life and now, to, to gain great relationships with folks where we can find commonalities on, on, on policy and also on perspective. Um, and, and just leave it at that. And we need to get back to that sort of discourse where we can agree to disagree and we can talk about these issues in a way that that's both empowering for both people and um, where people don't give up their principle, but but can be heard. Yeah. Well, I think that that's part of our tag right now is agree on something. Yeah. I mean, we can all find something to agree on. Um, and like you, I have very, very, very close friends. 
um, who are very opposite of me on the political spectrum. But I think about how much my life would be missing, the enrichment I get from them for, for all the other things they bring to the table, that if I was putting politics up, you know, as the barrier, that I wouldn't have those experiences and those memories and that enrichment of, of a fuller life. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that I, I really hope for as we move forward as a nation, uh, that we can find more common ground so that we can learn from each other and not just be yelling past each other. Yeah. Um, because there is so much that, I mean, friendship is so vitally important. And with the advent of social media and, you know, all the different ways that we can fire ourselves up and distance ourselves from people. I mean, yeah, you know, you might have three or 4,000 friends on Facebook, but who are you really friends with? And, you know, are you getting any actual enrichment out of that? You know, um, I mean, it's fun to share pictures. And I, I generally keep my Facebook and Instagram non-political. Um, and I do the political stuff on Twitter. Because Twitter's a dumpster fire, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm on, I once made a comment that Twitter's for twits. <laughs> I mean, it just is. There, and somebody got very upset at me. And I said, no, I mean, just look at it. It's just for twits. It's just, it, it, everyone's just po poking holes at each other. Yeah, it's just, it, it's, there's a few, there's a few people that, that are on Twitter that are, that actually bring value to the conversation from the standpoint of, they're not political they generally. They just are saying enriching things, good things, you know, good vibes. Um, but man, the political Twitter is just a, a it's just a hellscape. Yeah, people just go at each other. It's just and, crazy. And, and uh, I've I've been guilty of that at times. I'll I'll pop off. But one of the things that I've tried to do in in the last couple of years is say, you know, I can. I can disagree and I can point out that disagreement, but to be snide about it just isn't helpful. I yeah. mean, that's not, that's not who we are as people. Um, because, you know, we have the two party system. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, but man, it, we need to, we need to figure out how to kind of stop being so divided. Well, and, and so yet, hopefully, you know, maybe maybe this podcast can be a small part of that. We'll have people on who um, have opposing views from us. There'll be things that we disagree on, yeah. I'm sure. I don't know what. But um, well, what we've talked about is elevating the discussion, right? And I, I do hope we have some folks on here that, that have a you know, different worldview, but, but where we can talk about some, something that they're working on that's, that's showing true leadership you know, in a, in a manner that, that everyone needs to hear. And I think that's important. Yeah. It's interesting. I was, I'm reading at the moment, I'm reading um, Decision Points by George W. Bush. It was his memoir following his term, terms as president. So I think written in 2010, um, it's fascinating to read his experience, or one, his lifetime, you know, his he writes a little bit about his life, but particularly his experience in the White House 
because I was there. I mean, in the sense of I was in D.C. and on the Hill um, during his time as president. And um, so it's things that are familiar, things that I didn't know, obviously, based on, you know, the behind the scenes view he gives. But I remember how hated he was by some on the right and left. Yeah. Um, and, and at the time I thought, hey, can it can't possibly get any worse. <laughs> and then it did. <laughs> um, so we, we have a lot of work to do. Well, I mean, but you see that, um, I mean, if you look back at that time, one thing about politics that's, that's a truism, I think, is that, is that it's reactionary in nature. And so a, you know, how we got from George W. Bush to a Barack Obama to a Donald Trump to now a Joe Biden. And regardless how you feel, like I find good things in each of those men, um, really good things mm -hmm. that I, they're in each of them. But I wonder how we got here from, from Ronald Reagan. Yeah. As a, if, if that is the standard for us in the, in our generation, and, and, and I would, I would argue that was that, that he's the standard for both Republicans and de Democrats over the last 40 years. Sure. Because I, I think even Bill Clinton would say, yeah, that's the standard. And Barack Obama would say, yeah, that's pretty much who a lot of leaders have a political leaders over the last 40 years of us has tried to aspire to be. I mean, he was, he's the only person in our lifetime to be elected president that had an undisputable mandate. Oh. When you win 49 states, uh, that's, it's not even close. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. It was, it was a def, definite, a different time for, for sure. Um, but how we got to this point of, cancel culture, rise of socialism in America, uh, threats to the First Amendment, threats to the religious liberty, um, and, and these personalities of people, you know, the, the cult of personality too, with the last president, and now, I, for lack of a better term, the, a, an inactive, declining, cognitive person, a president in cognitive decline mm -hmm. to where, you know, obviously the agenda is being pushed by, by other folks. Um, I don't know how we got here. Yeah. I'm, I'm really confused and I have, I have my own opinions about, <laughs> about that and hopefully we can get into it, but hopefully, hopefully if we, we all have better angels, right. That, that, that both people on both sides, leaders of both sides can come together and say, okay, here's, here's what, is good for the country versus what's good for me or yeah. the party. Well, and it's it's the one of the things that has been a lesson for me as a kid who grew up revering Reagan is you if you put your faith in a politician, you're going to be let down. Yeah, you're always you have to keep your eye on your ideologue, your principles, you know, what is your baseline standards? Um, and man, 
that's the been the, the thing that's been the most surprising, I guess, is how much personal fealty there's been to Trump rather than to the principles by wide, you know, vast number of people. Yeah, I think we, I think we've talked about this a little bit before. There's a, there's a um, feeling about there, there's a large group of, I guess we're getting, get into this a little bit, but there was a large group of conservatives who never believed that Donald Trump was a conservative. Still don't. Mm-hmm. They weren't never Trumpers. They weren't forever Trumpers. But they were happy with the folks he brought around him to usher in conservative policies around whether it be social issues or economic issues. And um, for me personally, I, I was one of them and never would assume to defend some of the awful, rotten, disgusting things Donald Trump would say about other people, going back to what my father said to me back in 1984. Right. You know, we evaluate people by their hearts and just don't, just don't say those things. However, the one person that I always tried to evaluate during the last four years was a guy named Mike Pence. Because most of us who have either met or spent time with Mike Pence know his heart. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, when, when Donald Trump on January 6th went after Mike Pence, I was out. Yeah, that was... I was done. Um, and whatever happened after that, I was like, okay. And so here we are. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think that, I mean, the 6th will is clearly an inflection point and not a, not a positive one. Um, but hopefully it'll be a turning point as well that people look back and say, this was crazy. We, we lost our minds. I mean, I hope anyone involved will eventually come to that conclusion. Um, because, you know, having worked in Congress for 14 years and a number of different presidential elections, I mean, there was never this, there was never any doubt, right? It, even if people, you know, tried to make claims that even in 2000, when Bush won very, very narrowly, um, you know, when the Supreme Court ruled, Gore conceded, and he was gracious about it, and because he because he did it for the good of the country, right, right, put the country first, put the country first, yeah, something that and, previous and president didn't do. Yeah, you you put the country there's there's a, there's an inflection point where you just put the country first, and you put you know you can you can go down the rabbit hole. Um, or you can put the country first. Mm-hmm. And Al Gore had a choice. He could have gone down the rabbit hole. Um, uh, Trump decided to go down the rabbit hole after the Electoral College was v- v- voted and, and the election was validated. Yeah. And you can, we can talk about election in- integrity. We can talk about disparities in, in election law uh, across the country, but those are up for the states to decide they want to fix, yeah. not, not up for the federal government. Right. And um, at the end of the day, you know, Mike Pence uh, had a clear read of the Constitution. He had a clear read of his duty. He probably didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, but it, it didn't matter. 
and and what happened on that day, uh, I can watch. Um, probably for the same reason. I mean, when I lived in Washington D.C. shortly after, right after college, I mean, I used to smoke cigars on the Capitol steps with my buddies who lived down the street. And we would just go up there and drink bourbon and smoke cigars on the Capitol steps and hang out with the security. And now there's barbed wire and fencing. Oh, and by the way, the city that had undergone a renaissance under both Barack Obama and Donald Trump is in ruins. Yeah. It has returned to being one of the murderous capitals of our country. There's trash and, and, and junk everywhere. And for what? No. And um, it makes me really upset because I love Washington, D.C., and having both feeling like I grew up there and found my, my way there. And my wife is from there, and we love going there. And I, I didn't step foot in the district this, this last summer just because I didn't want to see it. Yeah. I just did not want to see it. Um, yeah, it's... Uh... It's de it's depressing. It's it's really depressing. depressing. On, and and that that is something we that that is a shared moment for no matter what political right persuasion you are. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That is something we can all agree on. You know, January sixth was horrific. Horrific. You know, at, at some point, you know, we're going to have a Pink Floyd moment. Tear down the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and and that's going to be the chant outside the Capitol. Yeah. Tear down the wall. <laughs> Uh, because that Matt is the Pelosi, that, tear down this wall. <laughs> that, is, that is that is the people's house, and and uh, and we have a right to access our government. We have a right, uh, in the constitutional right, to address our government, mm -hmm. and that is being um, denied at this point. Yeah, and um, and we've received absolutely no indication that it's going to change. Yeah, I mean, I last I'd seen is the Capitol Police were recommending that it stay forever, and and you know, it's at some point somebody's going to say, look, this, you know, we're not some, you know, dictatorship where we have to, you know, protect the monarchy from the masses with big walls and barbed wire, and you know, so hopefully that will change over time. Um, on a lighter note, yes, why don't we go just briefly. Um, a little bit of personal history, like we did a little bit of that, but maybe like things that motivate us, what our, what our family situation was like growing up, just so folks can get a little bit better sense of us. I mean, they can Google us and find out all kinds of different things, but none of that's the fun stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, well, for me, I... I, I was born in Phoenix, uh, spent four years of my, my life here. And then um, in May of 1974, uh, I was at my grandparents' house over at Arcadia Green on 48th and Thomas. And rather than turning right to go home to our home on 35th Avenue in Northern, we went left. And I asked my parents, where are we going? Why, why are we turning? And they said, we're moving to Tucson. I go, where's Tucson? <laughs> and we moved into this house that evening and slept on cots. And my father started uh, an enterprise called Golden Eagle Distributors, which grew into one of the largest 
Anheuser-Busch wholesalers in the country. And I grew up in Tucson, went to uh, Fruteller Elementary and St. Gregory High School, and and then was lucky enough, uh, really lucky enough, because it wouldn't happen today, uh, of being accepted into the University of Southern California, uh, back when you can get in with 3-5, <laughs> and enjoyed five years of, of Southern California up, did the five until, year plan, huh? up until the Rodney King riots. Hmm which was a really, um, really challenging time in my own um, thinking, uh, much in the same way that people are, are trying to make sense of the George Floyd mm -hmm. riots. Um, but I uh, uh, left Los Angeles and uh, decided to move to Washington, D.C. And my first job out of college was working for a guy named Morton Blackwell. And Morton Blackwell, for those people who don't know, was the youngest delegate at the 1964 Republican Convention in support of Barry Goldwater. And he will tell you that time and time, <laughs> time again. Time and time again. <laughs> and, and, and Morton founded the, in 1979 um, the Leadership Institute, which is the foremost um, educator and a motivator and activator of young conservatives in the country. Um, and has, has blossomed into a number of different educational programs for campaign finance, uh, um, getting a job on Capitol Hill, uh, a number of different things. And they, they, at that time, they were in the basement, basically the right to work building on 8001 Braddock Road in Springfield, Virginia. And now they're in, in Arlington with the, like two sprawling buildings and, mm -hmm. and doing tremendous work. Um, and that was, those were my formative years. And as I said before, it, Growing up, I I was always into politics for whatever reason. Um, I remember the the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite being on every night, and I was required to watch, even at age like five or six. And and I remember spirited debates happening um, with within the household, especially when we were over at my grandparents' house, and. Uh, and those were just formative years. And um, I remember being at St. Gregory High School and being told that, that I had to check my passions because when I got into college, nobody would listen to me if I was overbearing with my, my beliefs. Make an argument was what my, at that time, my history teacher would tell me. Make an argument. Don't. Don't be shrill. Don't be emotional. Just make an argument. And then, and then you can have a discussion. And I think, you know, I think we've lost that a lot. No question. As, as well. Um, but then uh, I, I was, like I said, I was working in D.C. And um, I left the Leadership Institute and I was traveling in Europe. And I fell off a cliff and I shattered my wrist and busted up my face. And I got shipped back to... Tucson undergo like six months of physical therapy, a lot of which still kind of plagues me today um, in terms of those those injuries. And then uh, my dad asked me to come back into the business. Uh, I spent, a, which was a really difficult decision because I didn't feel like I had done enough in D.C. I didn't feel like I had really lived out what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so I really struggled with that. But my physical injuries were, were such that I just, I didn't feel like I could, um, 
I lost my mojo. <laughs> I didn't feel like I could do what I wanted to do in DC and still undergo all the physical therapy that I had to on my wrist and learning how to, I had to learn how to walk again in some respects. Uh, cause I had a huge hematoma on my hip and, and, uh, and so I came back into the business and I traveled, uh, around, we had six branches at that time, Casa Grande, Globe, Flagstaff, Holbrook, uh, Buckeye and Tucson. And I traveled to all of them and worked in all of them for uh, over a year. And then in December of 1994, um, I, I was working in Buckeye and I got a phone call that my dad was in the hospital and he had uh, a brain tumor hmm. and then they found cancer everywhere. And he underwent about a month and a half of treatment at MD Anderson in Houston and he passed away February 23rd, 2000, excuse me, 1995. And then I began this roller coaster of kind of being bitter for being in the business and him not being there. I had a mom who was grieving, my sister who was grieving, and I was just doing whatever. Yeah. So we did that for 20 years and then we, 23 years. And then we sold it in, uh, in two, 2016 to, uh, Cindy McCain. Yeah. Five years ago, five years ago. <laughs> and, uh, that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother podcast. We'll, we'll have to go. On, that's yeah. a whole nother podcast. We'll do a podcast on uh, selling and buying and starting and stopping businesses. Yeah, right? we should. Yeah, be. We could do. A, we could do. Um, we could do a podcast on the dynamics of family businesses, hmm. and and how how they're successful and how they implode, and um, um, I mean the the you know thirty thousand foot reason why ours imploded was just a tremendous amount of triangulation and mistrust over several years of which I'm, I'm absolutely a third responsible for that. And so the selling of the business was actually the right decision. How it was sold, I still have, um, arguments, uh, against. Sure. Which is another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I, and then for you. Yeah, so I, I was born in Safford. Um, and the reason Safford is because my aunt and uncle lived there. He was a doctor. And uh, my it was my dad's older sister's husband, uh, Bruce Curtis. He delivered probably the vast majority of babies born in Graham County in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and... My parents were living in San Manuel. My dad was driving, he was going to U of A, driving an acid truck for the mines. My mom was teaching at San Manuel. And then after my second brother was born, or my next brother, my younger brother, the brother, I have five brothers and sisters, two, two brothers and three sisters. And we're all in order, three boys and then three girls. My parents moved to San Francisco for my dad to go to dental school. At University Pacific, um, so we lived in San Francisco for three years. That's where my first memories are. Um, we lived right next door to a fire department, and uh, so I would played a lot of fire, <laughs> firefighter, on the couch. Um, had a little hat. Um, then we moved to uh, I think the state of Arizona, and maybe they still do this. Um, there was some kind of a 
you know, student debt payback uh, if you went to under, underserved areas to practice dentistry. So my dad moved us to Shola. We almost ended up in Eager, Springerville and Eager, Round Valley, but we ended up in Sholo up in the White Mountains. Uh, small town at the time, probably about 4,000 people. It was a logging and ranching town. Um, now it's primarily tourists and second homes, um, as you know, Chris. And, you know, spent my all my formative years there. Uh, you know, went to a small high school, Sholo High School. Uh, it's the kind of place where you could be mediocre at sports and, you know, start on three different sports if you, if you were, you know, halfway decent. So, um, you know, I had aspirations to be a professional baseball player, but, you know, I might've been pretty decent in Sholo, but that wasn't enough. <laughs> so then, uh, grew up in a very, very traditional Mormon household, um, and went on a mission, you know, actually right before I turned 19 and uh, spent two years in Indiana. Uh, that's where I met my first wife. Um, we ended up getting married about less than a year after I got back from my mission. I was 21 and uh, had five kids and, you know, that ended and now I'm happily married and... I have a little two-year-old, Reagan. She's awesome, and a little boy on the way. That's, that's great. Quite a recap. Yeah, that, <laughs> and I would be remiss that um, shortly after my father passed away, I got married, and we had a beautiful daughter named Grace, And uh, but um, that didn't last. And, and then I met my, my current wife, Sasha. Um, she was working for Anheuser-Busch. Oh no, kidding! And, I did not know that. And she was our our um, consumer awareness rep, and we started dating in secret <laughs> for about four years. And then when that when Anheuser Bush imploded and the, the company was sold to the Brazilians, another podcast. <laughs> um, you know, we we decided, okay, which, what what are we going to do here? And and uh, we got married shortly thereafter. We have two kids, um, Preston, who's ten, and. Campbell, who's seven, and, and then their older sister, Grace, is doing great at Texas Christian, and we're all just doing amazing. Great. But uh, this should be fun. I'm, I'm really encouraged by, first of all, the response that we've received from folks that we've reached out to, mm -hmm. um, including um, Robert Vera from uh, Canyon Ventures at Grand Canyon University, and we need to say that we are recording at Grand Canyon University at Canyon Ventures. They've been good enough to open up um, a conference room and turn it into a, a, a podcast room for us. And and one of the goals that we have, our first guest will be Robert Vera, um, who is creating um, a really interesting ecosystem here at the at Canyon Ventures and the Innovation Center here. But also we're, we're gonna be highlighting businesses and students that are doing tremendous things here in leadership. Right, And that is, why we're here. We're going to talk about leadership, talk about transition, transformation, uh, talk about issues of faith and freedom and free enterprise. And what a better place to do that than Grand Canyon University, which has become the beacon of that yeah. here in the Valley and in the state. It really has. Um, and I, I encourage people to, to learn more about Grand Canyon University um, and Canyon Ventures. I mean, what Robert's doing is, is amazing. What, what Brian uh, Muller's done with the with the university 
has been uh, incredible to, to watch. Um, what Dan Marley's doing with the basketball team is great. Well, <laughs> well Dan, you know, got got let go last oh, year. Oh, did he? Yeah. <laughs> what he did, Jerry. <laughs> well, what's, Jerry's still doing it, right? <laughs> Colangelo's yeah. still a Well, big I mean, fan the Jerry Colangelo School of Business is a very special place because, because Mr. Colangelo has taken a personal interest in both the students, the faculty, what goes on here. He's here a lot. And, and that's, you don't see that. Yeah. A lot of people, I mean, business people, they, they lend their name to something, give several million dollars, put their name on a building and that's it. Yeah. And if, if, if your mission in life is to simply put your name on a building, if you think that creates legacy, you're wrong. Yeah. Totally agree. And I, I think you're right. The hands-on nature of what uh, Mr. Colangelo is doing is is remarkable yeah. because he is he is a you know say what you will he's he's had a pretty interesting career, but he has been a successful guy who started with nothing, and so. But also, a, you know, the other thing that that the other reason why we're we're doing this as well is that there's there's a there's a crux of faith running through here, obviously. And Jerry Colangelo has been a, a faithful guy, a man who's lived out his faith and has tried to inspire that in others. And we're hoping to do the same here. Yeah. We're going to have some faith leaders who who uh, will, will tell their stories and 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 we'll, we'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about... All sorts of things. Well, and, I, and we'll get into our own journeys, right? Yeah. We've, we've both had interesting uh, journeys of faith. Uh, obviously, mine's been quite interesting, <laughs> but we can get into that again. We'll maybe we'll just do a, a, an episode of you know the faith journey and get into that. But yeah, I, Chris, I couldn't be more excited about about this podcast, light beer, dark money. Uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, people will enjoy it as much as we do. And you know what, if they don't, we're still going to have a blast. Yeah. We're going to have a great time. <laughs> we're going to have good conversation. We're going to elevate the conversation. And, uh, like I said, we have, we have some folks lined up who, who are friends who, um, are being supportive of that idea of elevating the conversation of green, not something. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, until next time. Until next time. I'm Light Beer. And I'm Dark Money. <laughs> Have a good one, guys. <laughs> <laughs>